0: Uh, I am to tell you, if this seems awkward, it's because I'm reading a script. Uh, this panel is supported by Lockheed Martin and Old Castle Materials. Though sponsors and donors underwrite this event, they play, they play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. I have not been bribed. Um, <laughs> at least if someone's getting bribes, it's not me. Um, to my immediate left is Representative Cesar... Blanco, who represents District 76 in El Paso. Repres- <laughs> represents Blanco uh, followed a long family tradition of serving, in, serving his country by joining the United States Navy. He was initially a uh, stinger missile gunner and then went to military uh, intelligence uh, school to become an analyst. That's what I did in the Army, so we were talking about being uh, cryptographers back in the day. Um, He served from 1995 to 2001 and had postings at uh, the National Security Agency at Fort Meade and also deployed to Bahrain, where he worked on ships operating in the Gulf. After serving in the Navy, Representative Blanco earned his degree at UTEP with help from the GI Bill. And then I don't think anyone has any problem recognizing uh, General Land Commissioner George P. Bush. How's it going, everybody? In 2006, Commissioner Bush applied to the U.S. Naval Reserve through the Direct Commission Officer Program. He obtained his commission in 2007. From October 2009 to June 2010, he supported the Navy Reserve Joint Intelligence Center, U.S. Central Command. In June of 2010, he was mobilized for an eight-month tour of duty at Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. He resigned his commission in, as a lieutenant in June of 2017. Um, he received the Joint Service Commendation Medal for his Meritorious Service and the Afghanistan Campaign Medal. And I should note that Representative Blanco also won the Joint Service Commendation and two Naval Achievement Awards. Uh, our uh, one female on the, audi- on the panel is Mary Jennings Hayguard, better known as MJ. She was commissioned into the U.S. Air Force through the ROTC at at UT, here at UT in 1999. And she was initially an aircraft maintenance officer working on F-16s and B-2s. In 2004, she was selected for pilot training by the Air National Guard. She served three tours in Afghanistan, flying helicopters on combat search and rescue missions, as well as medevacs. On July 29, 2009, she was shot down on a medevac mission and sustained wounds, resulting in her being awarded the Purple Heart. Her actions on this mission saved the lives of the crews and patients, and she won the Distinguished Flying Cross with Valor. Now she's running for Democrat for Congressional District <laughs> <in> 30. <laughs> 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 and um, she does have a best-selling book called Shoot Like a Girl, which I understand you'll be signing after the panel. Yes. Um, on the very end, last but not least, is State Senator Van Taylor, who represents us, District 8 uh, out of Plano. Van volunteered for the Marine Corps and served three and a half years of active duty. (laughs) Um, He deployed to Iraq, where he fought with the Second Second Force Reconnaissance Company. He is an infantry officer. (laughs) Van planned and supervised 55 combat missions for his platoon, Dagger 9. Uh, the Marine Corps awarded Captain Taylor the Combat Action Rib- Ribbon, Presidential Unit Citation, and the Navy Commendation Medal with V for Valor. And um, so, well. <laughs> So I intentionally left out a lot of the political bios because, frankly, that's really boring compared to what they did before. Um, <laughs> and. Um, I also And Evan, Evan made this observation, and I agree with him, that we're beginning to see a lot of veterans enter uh, politics and public service, uh, more so than perhaps before 9-11. And so we want to talk about this and about what, how military service inspires or informs political service, um, and what lessons they bring with them, and, and how that will improve their ability to do their jobs. Um, so, I'm just going to throw this one broad question out there to everyone. Um, you know, Representative Blocka, we'll start with you. Why did you join the military? What was your goal in doing that, and, and what was perhaps your most important experience?
1: Well, uh, first of all, thank you all for, for joining us today. Um, you know, I've got a, I come from a long line of military service in my family. We've had someone who served uh, in every conflict uh, since World War I in my family. So. Um, you know, my father served and uh, retired military, so for me, it's it was about giving back. Uh, for me, it was about something that, an obligation that, that I wanted to do and fulfill uh, for my country. Um, and you know, that really hasn't changed. Uh, I think after my service in the military, I wanted to continue to serve in public service. I think it's something that um, as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, uh, we, we want to continue to, to improve our communities and serve our, our communities in a different capacity. Uh, it goes back to the, the citizen soldier that uh, George Washington, who, uh, our great leader, um, one of those values that, uh, that, that he created and that, that is instilled in all of us, I think that once we serve in arms uh, or in uniform, uh, you, you don't li- let the citizenship part go away. Uh, you continue to, to, to serve in your community as best as you can to improve the lives of, of people. So that's why I, I decided to continue in public service uh, post, post-military uh, service.
0: Commissioner?
2: Commissioner? Well, uh, similarly, you know, I've always been drawn to causes uh, greater than myself, and the military, I think, uh, does exactly that. Um, in '06, after 9-11, I think like a lot of the 9-11 generation really wanted to step in and figure out ways in which we could help. Um, as a civilian you know, who worked in the federal judiciary after uh, I went to law school here at University of Texas, I always constantly ask myself, what can I do? And um, I'll never forget going to um, Newport News in Virginia and watching the christening of the George H.W. Bush. Uh, my grandfather invited me to join him for, for that event and talked with um, fellow members of the Navy about their experiences, and uh, basically right after that called him my recruiter. As it turns out, the recruiter that brought me into the Navy I'm now working with at FEMA uh, in response to Harvey. And it, it just goes to show that, uh, as you say, the brotherhood um, just always uh, finds itself in, in public service. And so um, now that I've transitioned out of um, my military service after 10 years, um, I, I just, I, I'm fulfilled. I've always been fulfilled. I, I feel more complete after, uh, in, in, in the process of serving causes greater than myself. And um, I'm definitely blessed to have that opportunity. Ms. Hager?
3: I wish I could say it was all ideological. I think there was a lot of ideology behind my decision to join. I've uh, always been a student of the Constitution. I wanted to take an oath to support and defend the Constitution. I think that's why, when I got out of the military, I felt the itch to continue supporting and defending the Constitution against any threats. Um, but there was an element, I was young, there was an element of my being an adrenaline junkie and wanting to be like Han Solo, so I wanted to be a pilot. Uh, (laughs) and I didn't want to be an airline pilot, I wanted to be a combat pilot. So really I can't be honest and say it was all just because I wanted to be something uh, a part of something bigger than myself, of course, that was there, um, because when I joined I, was joined, I joined the military without the promise that I would be a pilot, so I wanted to serve my country. I believe in this country even when we're making mistakes, and I am proud of this country. I wanted to serve this country, but I wanted to be Han Solo, too. So <laughs> I also uh, was self-aware enough to know that I needed the discipline, <laughs> so I think it was um, perfect for the direction I was trying to push my life into. Great. Uh,
4: Senator? Sure. Uh, well, again, thank you for having us. It's great great to see all of you out here. Um, you know, I, I wanted to serve and make a difference. Uh, I also uh, you had a long long line of military service. My father was a Green Beret. Uh, my, uh, I, my paternal grandfather actually uh, left college to go to World War I and then came back and finished college after that. Uh, and then my, mater- my mother was actually born while her father was uh, on convoy duty in the Second World War in the Atlantic. Um, uh, and so long long history in my family and military service uh, and was incredibly grateful for the opportunity to serve uh, in the Marine Corps. I really, uh, really enjoyed it. It was enormously satisfying uh, and I tell anybody who thinks about it, if you think it's for you, it's a great experience. You should go do it. It's not for everybody. Uh, it's certainly a very unique calling, but for those that do it, um, I know that they really love it and just you know, um, in my uh, in my Harvard Business School class, there were seven Marines, and uh, we were the happiest people there. We thought we had the best uh, prior, prior business school experience uh, having served on active duty in the Marine Corps. Uh, and actually, several of us went on after graduation to go do what I did and go into combat.
0: Well, Senator, I, I, I'm going to start with you because sure. you were an infantry officer. You commanded a platoon. I was a platoon sergeant when I was in. Um, and, you know, I think it's... Can be unfashionable to say but not every service member is a saint um you know i've i've had to bail a few of my troops out of jail on occasion um on you know does military service automatically give you an advantage in public service or a better perspective on policy you know i, I think we, we we tend to put veterans up on a pedestal and and sometimes we listen to them talk about things that they really know nothing about. Um, so what, what is your perspective on, on
4: that? Well, I mean, I'll begin with saying that, uh, you know, diversity of experience is certainly incredibly valuable. I mean, I see that in the Texas legislature where, um, you know, maybe 20% of it are attorneys. And then you've got, you know, the Texas Senate, we've got... Two doctors. We've uh, we've got you know people who are insurance agents or people who are real estate or I mean so that diversity of experience I think is incredibly helpful in a policymaking body. I think that you're setting a, you know you're setting a legislature up for failure if it has 80 percent retired military, 80 percent attorneys, 80 percent school teachers, 80 percent whatever whatever you would choose whatever silo you would choose. So I think there's I think you so I think beginning with that is I think is, is important. Um, Further, I would say that you know, <clears throat> my experience has been one of the things that you know in the military is you're assigned your platoon, and those are the people you have, and you're going to work as best you can with the people that you're assigned to. And I think in you know, the legislature is very similar. You walk into that. Well, I mean, you know, the voters of every district in <laughs> the voters of every district in the state send certain people to go represent them. Uh, and they wouldn't be necessarily who you would vote for, who you would choose, but they are the elected representative. They're your peer. They're, they're they're a peer as a senator. They're your peer as a member of. They're your peer as a as a House member. They're you know they may be the governor, and that may not have been your choice, but that's the person that's doing that job, and you're doing your job. Uh, and I think that part of it is at least one thing you, you skill you pick up in the military, whether you want to or not, if you're in a leadership position, is you figure out how to get the most out of the people that you have. Uh, in that perspective, that idea of, hey, I'm going to get the most out of everybody in the room right now, uh, which you learn in the military, absolutely applies when you're in the legislature, where you're trying to get the most out of every member of whatever committee you're on. Hey, you know what? This person's not as strong in this area, but they're really good over here. Let's have them work on that. And so I think being able to break up this, the problem, distribute it back out, come back with a solution, that basic skill set, I think you see in the military, uh, and I think it absolutely applies when you get into, into public service.
0: Well, and you anticipate one of my questions, and I want to open this up to everyone, is that, yeah, when when you join, you're, stuck, you're assigned to a unit with a group of people. You don't get to choose them. You may not like them, but you may have to go to war with them. Um, does that help with politics, Commissioner?
2: Absolutely. I would say that's the case right now with Harvey response. Um, you know, I couldn't agree more with Senator that... You know, getting the most out of everybody in our team will be a challenge uh, to work day and night to make sure that we're attending to the needs of uh, millions of Texans that have been uh, displaced in response to this and having the enormous task of coming forward with uh, temporary housing solutions for the first time in Texas state history in response to the the country's largest natural disaster. Um, This is why we serve others. Um, And that's actually just jumped off a call reminding folks that there are right now uh, people living without, without shelter, and um, it's on each and every one of us to make sure that we're doing everything possible uh, that we can. Um, I think crisis management um, are one of the skills that you learn from the military, unlike uh, a lot of other civilian positions, keeping a cool head um, despite um, the, the surroundings behind you. When I came into office, we tried to organize uh, our staff around the principle that General McChrystal wrote about called Team of Teams where you uh, create more of a collaborative, um, a, a collaborative environment with, with various skill sets that can, that can accomplish a mission. And um, he wrote about his military experiences. We've translated that into a, into a bureaucracy to do exactly what Van is talking about, and that's extracting as much out of our people as, as possible, um, despite the challenges that you have, whether they be regulatory or, or legal. So. Um, I think it's been helpful in terms of politics and running for office. I don't know if it's dispositive, meaning like if you're a veteran and the challenger against you is not that, that automatically qualifies you. But I certainly think it's uh, it's accretive.
1: I think, um, in my perspective, uh, being a veteran and serving as the vice chair of the Defense of Veterans Committee, um, it it helps me relate to the veterans, I understand what veterans are going through uh, many times, whether it's education benefits or it's. If it's housing, or if if it's um, you know issues of PTSD or substance abuse, uh, I think it's helpful that you have someone who has been through the military and and has been through experiences that uh, other veterans and veteran organizations can relate to. Um, so it's helped me uh, to be a, a more effective legislator, I think, in understanding the issues uh, at a deeper level. Um, on the political side, you know, I, I approach my campaign very much like. a a war you know you you (laughs) you you, there's a strategy there's there you know you 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 have to have a chain of command uh within your campaign structure uh someone's in charge uh you've got uh your field organizers out in the field gathering intelligence winning the hearts and minds of of constituents um so you know in many ways i think that gave me somewhat of an advantage uh, uh in my campaign so uh um i think i think it does give you an advantage
3: I think one of the most effective characteristics of a leader is to, you mentioned that not everybody who serves is a saint, Um, and I had, at one point, I had 230-something people under me as a maintenance officer um, and definitely spent uh, time bailing people out. Um, But I think that one of the most effective characteristics of a leader is to be able to see what everybody can give to the team, and to understand that while joining the military, one of the best experiences about joining the military is that you're thrust into this, you're forced into this melting pot of different cultures and people, but we all have certain characteristics that are common among us, the sacrifice and the willingness to serve our country. Um, And I think that it's probably similar in politics, that even if you are with people whose experiences you might not understand, Veterans who have been in that situation before are maybe more likely to open up to those experiences and see the things that we have in common. We're trying to provide shelter for people. We're trying to take care of people. We may disagree on how to do that, but we can identify that and find that common ground to to come up with actual solutions instead of trying to score points on a board against each other.
0: You know, Ms. Hager, I might just start this question with you which doesn't make any sense, but do you anticipate that, is there, do you think there's a difference between being a military leader and a political leader? And, and are you going to have to, do you anticipate, or have you noticed any change and what kind of leadership values are needed?
3: There's enormous differences, I think. Um, I think that being a veteran running for office, you have an advantage because you've learned a skill set. You may have tools in your toolbox that other people didn't have the opportunity to assemble um, at a young age. But I do think that it is it is different. Um, I'm fortunate in that I spent a, a five-year career in healthcare after I was... After I got out of the military, and I'm I'm glad that I learned the leadership <laughs> lessons of transitioning before I ran for office, because there were certain things culturally that it was difficult for me to get re- reaccustomed to. Um, people would be late for meetings, or people would question the direction of the CEO, and it just was foreign to me to not be able to be like, you know, why are you late? Drop and give me 20 (laughs) push-ups. That doesn't go over well. Um, So I'm glad that I learned those lessons and had that transition into the civilian sector before I tried to go and and be this type of leader because it is is very different. So I can use a lot of the tools that I assembled, but you have to do it in in a much more change management way um, and in much more what's in it for me just because of human nature, finding out what motivates people, finding out how to speak to them to get the most performance out of your team that, that you're looking for.
2: Anyone else? Yeah, I actually very much agree. I think um, you know, the, the great thing about the military is because of rotation, depending on what branch you're in and your assignments, you see a, a lot of different case studies of leadership. You see strong, you see weak, um, you see more um, of an incorporation of different viewpoints or a command and control, and um, politics not necessarily uh, the same way. So I think, you know, in politics, the def- definition of leadership is burning some of your available political capital to accomplish a, a, a cause that's greater than than um, than self. And sometimes you have to um, to compromise to do that. Whereas in military, and a lot of the strong leaders that you witness in a command and control structure, um, that's not exactly the case. It, and um, you know, I think our, our experiences would, would um, probably reflect that. Uh, I'll, <clears throat> I'll say certainly, you know, leadership
4: matters. I mean, you know, when I was uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, I was at a, a part of my active duty time, I was at an uh, artillery regiment. And the battalion I was in, 211, was the, the best artillery battalion in the regiment, just, you know, pretty much without question. We were the best at, pr- at delivering fires and getting places and doing things. The battalion commander rotated off. A new battalion commander took over. The next exercise, five months after he took over, we were the worst battalion in the regiment. Uh, that, that, reg- that battalion commander basically deconstructed all the different structures that the battalion commander before him had put in place. Uh, and so I realized from that, wow, the Marine Corps made those th- four artillery battalions exactly equal. They're firing the same howitzers with the same number of rounds, they're at the same barracks, they go to the same training, they wear the same uniforms, we eat the same chow, have the same fuel allotment, and I have wildly different outcomes, and it literally shifts. I mean so you could not blame structure on outcomes uh, and I think that that's I think that's also true in state government I mean leadership matters the decisions that an organization makes whatever they are lead you to different directions and so I certainly think that uh, my, at least my time in the Marine Corps, that leadership experience of being with a great unit that then turned into a bad unit, that, that to me was probably the, one of the most important leadership lessons I've had. I realized, hey, it's not about the howitzers you have. It's not about your ammo allotment. It's about the people and the decisions they make and the structures that are set up. And what was interesting is, for that battalion commander, most of his subunit leaders were the same. His battery commanders didn't change. So it wasn't even that. It was just one guy at the top, un-de- deconstructing a few things. Not many, just a few, but he did enough to basically um, really put the unit way back.
0: Well, you know, I saw that in Iraq. You would go, I would be in bed with one unit and it may be extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And then that mission would be up, I'd jump to another uh, infantry company, different commander, different brigade, and it would just be shockingly different. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in terms of everything about the unit, how people behave. Um, the military also rewards initiative. We're all taught to take initiative. Um, that's not always a good thing in politics, is it?
4: Well, it's interesting because in, in peacetime, what I saw, because you know, my first half of my career was in peacetime, it was very much about thought, doing it by the book, no injuries, nothing, no broken equipment, showing up on time. That's how you were sort of measured by success. When we rolled across the line of departure, and I led the first platoon into Iraq, It was a real culture shock for people that, guess what, Reveille isn't relevant anymore. Getting up at 6.30 every single morning didn't work. It was 24-7 combat operations. I mean, I remember uh, coming back from an all-day mission to refuel my vehicles, and and we said, okay, we're here to refuel our vehicles, and the corporal came out and said, no, we're closed. It's 8.30 at night. No, corporal, you're You're fueling my vehicles now because I may have to go across the wire in 30 minutes. I don't know when my next mission is. I've got, to, but, just, but that change of mentality. So it's interesting you say that, because I think in peacetime, initiative is not rewarded. I think in wartime, initiative is, is absolutely critical, because there's no canvas wider than the canvas of war. And so I think there's a big contrast uh, in, terms of, in terms of in what situation you're in that initiative is awarded. I think initiative is rewarded in politics um, if you can put together a consensus and you're thoughtful about it. But it really goes back to your earlier question about what kind of leadership, what makes leadership different. And I think that you know leadership in the in the military, someone can walk in and say, "Okay, we're all getting up at five thirty in the morning." Right? So that's a great idea, sir. What a that's super five thirty. We always want to get up at five thirty, but you can't you can't do that in the civilian world. You've got to build consensus around it. You have got to be slower, more deliberate, more thoughtful about who are my allies going to be, how going I pick them up to build momentum to try to get this thing across the finish line. And in the legislature, it's way more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, I think. <clears throat> and, I've got an example, you know, as a freshman legislator uh, last session on the issue of Hazelwood. Um, uh, when that bill came up, I didn't. I took the initiative and and fought for it, you know, to protect it. Um, I didn't, as a freshman member in the caucus, I didn't go to our caucus leadership and say, "Hey, uh, this is a bill I think I feel very strongly about. Do you mind if I, I just did it?" Um, and I think you know uh, that taught me a lesson that that. Um, you can win battles uh, you can, on policy, um, and, and there are rewards, uh, and I think the reward in this case is that veterans get to keep their benefits, their education benefits. Um, so, you know, but I think that's something that I learned in, during service, that sometimes you lead from the front. I mean, all the time you lead from the front. Um, you shouldn't be afraid to take the initiative. You shouldn't ta- be afraid to, to act on, on, on a leadership opportunity. Uh, when when it presents itself. So uh, in in that scenario, I I thought it was rewarding and ultimately I think the the benefit went to the veterans that were able to keep their, their education benefits.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure initiative is always rewarded in the military. I think it's, there's guidelines and there's timeliness and things that you have to learn um, that I think are similar in, in political uh, service that you know it is about building a coalition, but it's also um, the, the type of initiative that you take. So the informal leadership was probably my most favorite part of, of my military career and learning about that, not only as someone who could step into a vacuum of leadership when needed, but when I was the leader identifying who my informal leaders were in my team um, that would actually help us accomplish the mission. Um, So I think that even if you're not the person on the bill, even if you're not the driving force behind it, it's... When I was in D.C. trying to open jobs for women um, for the military, I was amazed by how much was done by people behind the scenes and staffers and people who had so much influence and had that informal leadership.
0: Commissioner Bush, let me... Let me move the uh, topic along a little bit to to veterans issues. You serve on the, uh, you're the chairman of the Texas Veterans Board. Um, Obviously, we all want veterans to get the benefits that they deserve, and we want to treat them well. Um, Sometimes we give benefits that really maybe aren't necessary while failing in other areas. Uh, what is your take right now on, on the status of things and, and how does your military experience influence your position?
2: Well, uh, the Texas Veterans Land Board is, is really uh, probably one of the most uh, important functions of state government that not a lot of folks really know about. Military veterans do in, in this patriotic state. We have 1.7 million veterans uh, that reside in the communities that are represented here. Um, and it, it's really extraordinary getting a travel around the state and, and meeting with veterans affairs groups and uh, leadership in, in this community as we deal with these issues. You know, the issues um, that we see, we're first of all involved more on the finance side uh, of the ledger. We will take care of our military veterans, provide low interest rate loans on homes to buy land. We will take care of, of our infirm veterans as well and work with the federal VA. And uh, we provide the lo- last rite of passage. Um, we manage four cemeteries for, for military veterans here. And we've we've done what we can um, up to the legal limit to reduce the financial burden on military veterans, and we're proud uh, of that record. But I think it's gonna take a, a private sector and nonprofit uh, solution along with government to address the needs of military vets. Um, Cesar is working hard on the education side of things, and, and that will be a long-term you know discussion that future legislative sessions are gonna have to deal with in a constrained, fiscal environment, but I I see a huge need, and Cesar touched on this before, on PTS and civilian transition. Um, Not all vets are broken. I mean, there there are tremendous heroes, um, including on this stage, that will serve, Um, but there are many veterans that are are suffering. Um, It's great to see in our state that we have veterans courts that are dealing with uh, criminal issues, such as criminal adjudication, um, substance abuse, and a different philosophy as it relates to treating you know, these issues uh, on mental health and um, and, um, and and TBI. So we have a long way to go, but if you compare us to other states, I, I would put us up there, um, you know, at least in the top five in terms of services, programs that are available. We have um, a great bipartisan delegation that, that holds the, the VA accountable. I don't think it's a political issue that's defined by who the, the president is, honestly. I think it's more of a bureaucratic challenge that we all have to come together to. To tackle, um, but but I, I, I for one, being you know at the VLB, I'm excited to work with VLB, with the uh, legislative session every every time we uh, reconvene so that you know I can work with folks like CISO who, who chaired uh, on the House side uh, these issues so that we can um, so that we can be um, advanced on it.
4: Sure. Uh, it, you know, in my, Actually, the first bill that I filed as a House member was a bill to help uh, men and women uh, who are serving outside of their home counties to be able to vote. Uh, it was literally physically impossible to request and receive and return a ballot in 30 days if you were serving really anywhere outside of Texas. So even if you were in Fort Lewis, Washington or Iwakune, Japan uh, or, or Kandahar, you basically could not vote. And I thought that was pretty shocking. I did a lot of research on it, and actually this was, people have been complaining about this back to the Korean War. Uh, And what we did is we drafted a bill that would allow military personnel to request to receive uh, a ballot electronically and then be able to return that ballot uh, by snail mail. And that actually increased military voting 150%. So not only was it the first bill that I filed, it was also the first bill I passed. And it it passed on a bipartisan basis. Uh, uh, Senator Leticia Vandepute. Uh, from San Antonio, actually carried that for for me in the Senate, or I carried it for her in the House, I should say. Uh, but uh, but you know, I think there are opportunities to do things like that to help better. You know, and that's really helping active duty military. Uh, was proud uh, last session to carry a bill to uh, make sure that men and women who are serving in the National Guard, who are defending our border, had the same right to defend themselves as peace officers. They were actually being put in harm's way uh, with weapons around uh, drug traffickers and and had no right to defend themselves beyond the same rights that anybody in this room has. And I just thought that that wasn't right. If you're gonna put somebody in uniform and ask them to risk their life, you better at least give them the legal ability to defend themselves Uh, and was very proud to get that done.
3: I think it's often um, a misperception that when you're a veteran you're taken care of for life and that a lot of people think that Um, our veteran communities are taken care of with benefits and I think that you know I I myself did 12 years in the military three tours in Afghanistan and when I got out I went to use the GI Bill and I only qualified for 60 percent of the GI Bill so I think that there are rules and regulations in place that um, we can't let the perception remain that when veterans have benefits that's all we need to do for them and we don't need to like you know, take care of underserved and marginalized communities. I often look at not just veterans' benefits, but programs that benefit lower socioeconomic status people and families, let's be honest, a lot of whom are veterans uh, because—and Beto talks about this a lot and I fully agree with him—that there are people who get other than honorable discharges. Um, And we used to look at people in that group with some sort of disdain. And I think that that's the wrong thing to do as well, because a lot of times the circumstances to led to that other than honorable discharge were something that should have been considered PTSD or something, uh, some kind of substance abuse or something that was missed and that we didn't, we failed to take care of. The military leaders failed to take care of. So there are holes and gaps that um, are in veteran benefits that when we talk about taking affordable healthcare away from people and some of the other benefits that we're trying to provide as a safety net for people who are doing their best, um, that veteran populations are impacted by that a lot.
1: I think um, on the benefits side, um, I I agree with MJ. Um, When we have 22 veterans committing suicide uh, a day, we have a moral obligation as a state to provide services and benefits. Um, you know, we, uh, these are young men and women that go out uh, and do extraordinary things for our quality of life in our country. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to do more uh, on the benefit side, especially on mental health, on, P- on PTSD, and, and, and on substance abuse. And, and I think our state has stepped up. Uh, Both Republicans and Democrats have come together and realized that uh, as one of the states that produces more veterans uh, in this country, we send more uh, war fighters uh, than any other state uh, next to California and Florida. Um, We got to make sure we take care of them when they come back home because these are 18 and 19-year-old men and women that are facing extraordinary circumstances. uh, as as uh, commissioners indicated, yes, some come back more more broken than others, and others come back and cope well and do and, and, and move on with their lives. but for those that uh, are, are really struggling with hardship that's our it's our duty uh, as a state to make sure that they have benefits uh, and services available to them
0: so Start thinking about your questions. We're going to spend the last 20 minutes um, giving you a chance to ask the panel some questions. We have two microphones set up. Um, and while you think about that, I've got uh, a question for Ms. Hager, who has developed a, has been praised as a uh, an emerging and important voice on national security issues. Um, you know, when as a as a signals intelligence guy, you know, we always we could We could look at the signals from a thousand miles away and think we know what's happening, but there's nothing like ground truth, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to be on the ground and see with your own two eyes what's going on. How does your military service and your experiences, you know, influence your ideas about national security and and how to deal with those?
3: Sure. It's such a complex issue. Um, National security is everything from how we treat our allies to how we position ourselves with the UN and NATO to um, the climate, the world climate that we present um, and that we support. I think that the thing that's the most personal to me, I spent two years on the B2 program, so I think funding military technology is an aspect of national security that is sometimes looked at as the only aspect that Congress can influence, and I disagree. Um, And I think that it is the people, absolutely, and how you care for them and how you set them up for success. But that's not just the American people. When I was in Afghanistan, I was working closely with locals. I was shaking hands with people who were serving me my food. They were providing us translation services, they were intelligence sources, they were putting their lives, and more importantly, their families' lives, in danger by helping us in what we were trying to do. They were serving as Afghan National Army and police. Um, And without politicizing it, making blanket statements about people from certain countries or who practice certain religions or anything like that include all of these people who put their lives and their families' lives in danger to try to help me do what I was trying to do there. Um, we cannot be effective in anything we do in any country, whether it 's humanitarian aid, preventing genocide, anything that we 're trying to accomplish in any country without the help and support of the people on the ground in those countries. So in the future, when we go into these places for whatever reason, the people who are on the ground there faced with the decision to help us are going to think back and remember how we treated the people who have helped us in the past. so the morally you know the moral situation aside. The strategic and effective thing to do is to maintain our alliances with those people and treat them well and not issue blanket statements about, um, about people. It would be great if we lived in a world, I would feel safer if we lived in a world where we could say, well, if we don't let people from these countries in our country, then we're, we'll be safe. But that's not the reality.
4: I'll just say that I was up till midnight last night reading her book. It's a really good read. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that MJ's book is a. It's a great read. It's really gripping. I did not stay up until midnight because I couldn't sleep. It was because I couldn't put the book down. Thank uh, you. And it is a great book. I think. Uh, and I'm a father of three daughters, and when they're old enough, because there's some pretty pretty hardcore stuff in her book, uh, I want them to read it because it really shows a woman who over overcame a lot of bias, a lot of prejudice uh, as a woman trying to serve uh, her country, uh, particularly a woman trying to serve her country in combat. But, Thank you. I think she has a very, she hasn't come out today. I don't know if you want to expand on it, but she has a really incredible personal story that is in her book, and you should get a copy anyway. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Thank
0: you. Well, we're left with the two Intel guys to uh, talk oh, a little bit about, uh, you know, how, how having access to intelligence, having access to those perspectives, how does, how does that influence your politics and and your sense of what national security is and what it takes to accomplish it.
2: Well, uh, at the General Land Office, we're not exactly the pointy tip of the spear on foreign policy on behalf of the state <laughs> or uh, the United States of America. But um, in light of our relationship with our, our partners in Mexico, uh, particularly on energy reform issues, um, you know, MJ is correct. Building those uh, relationships are important for any type of relationship, whether it's uh um, a hot, tumultuous area such as the Central Caucasus uh, regions, or um, what we see in, in Central South America with, uh, you know, the Venezuelan regime. So, um, building those relationships, many say in the intelligence community, if we focus more on developing our human resources uh, abroad and giving them the, the resources necessary to prosecute uh, the information that helps ourselves and our allies out, we could be better off in the long. Off, off in the long run. Um, so we've perhaps relied a little bit too much, no offense to, to the SIGINT guys, but, um, but we've relied a lot on tech and it's important and it will continue to have an increasing role, but um, having valid human, human, uh, human intelligence on the ground um, is absolutely essential to our own security interests in this hemisphere and abroad. So um, I, I don't study as much as I used to. I do miss that aspect of my job in the military. Um, but over the long term, that is what has distinguished our services in this space uh, from, from our friends and our, uh, our, our enemies.
1: I agree with everything that they've said. Uh, you know, I think that um, uh, there is a new front in warfare, and that's cyber. Mm-hmm. And we are being attacked by Russians and by the Chinese and by so many other countries uh, regularly. Um, and that has informed me as a, as a state legislator on how uh, we're protecting our state agencies uh, in the cyberspace. Um, I've offered legislation and I work very closely with um, uh, Riverside um and, and we've done a lot of great work this session on, on cyber. We, um, I did a, uh, I read a study from the Texas Department of Information that, that demonstrates that we're not uh, as safe as we should be as a state, uh, we could do a lot more. And there's a lot of deficiencies, and I think a lot of legislation that passed this session is going to address a lot of that. But as uh, we continue to see um, weaknesses, uh, they could take out our electrical grids at, in, at any point. Um, you know, when you, in the old days, uh, in World War II and other places, the first things you go bomb before you send troops... Are your electrical grids, uh, your communication uh, um, uh, uh, infrastructure platforms? Uh, it's no different in cyber, and you can do that uh, by hacking. So, I think as a state, uh, we've stepped up our game this last legislative session, but we need to do more uh, as that threat continues to increase.
0: Great. Well, I think we're. If you've uh, got some questions, please head to the microphones. Um, I will say that we'll get to as many questions as we can, but if we don't get to your question, we will be meeting out in the lobby afterward for a, a brief meet and greet with everyone on the panel. So let's start over here with on the, my right. Hi, uh,
6: my name's Thomas, and uh, I spent six years in the Air Force. I started out as a SIGINT analyst and then specialized in cyber, actually.
0: God, how many of there how <laughs> many of their, there were a million of us, I guess. There so. were, there were. <laughs>
6: Um, so, but my question is, we we live in a country that is predominantly defined by voter apathy. Uh, a lot of people don't vote. Um, approximately over 42% didn't vote in this last election. And a lot of those consequences have been borne out by the, the, the military, which is a very small percentage of the population. How do you think about how to leverage a lot of the veterans who believe in... in being a part of something bigger than themselves and serving and getting more and more veterans involved in the political sphere, even though we are seeing an increase, there's a lot more that can be done.
2: Thanks. Well, I would say the, uh, the Texas figure is even lower than that in terms of voting participation. We need to do a better job. I think we're uh, 49th out of 50 in terms of, uh, particularly in a non-presidential election year. You know, my uh, viewpoint on this is we need more veterans to run for office. Um, you know, you have the 9-11 generation, our conflict in Afghanistan now is at uh, 16 years uh, of length, uh, may, may not be a precise number there, but we have a generation, and yes, we only represent less than 1% of the overall, we're the 1% of a different kind, and, uh, but that 1% needs to step forward and, and um, make that jump. I know it's tough in, in visiting with uh, veterans groups to encourage more candidacies. You guys take time away from your profession in many instances. Um, you know, just ask the legislators here what they have to do in terms of sacrifice, what it means for your family, uh, particularly as you're transitioning back to uh, the civilian world. But I think that will electrify more people to vote when they see these stories of heroism uh, and compassion in serving others. That, that's going to inspire more people to vote and get involved.
3: I think it's a leadership question. I'm actually going up to DC in a couple weeks to meet with uh, one of the Joint Chiefs. Um, and, and that's one of the things I plan to talk with him about is that one of the nice things about the military is that culture change is still difficult to accomplish, but it's easier because there is a chain of command um, and we can you know, suggest things that different military leaders can allow or uh, support. And I have Fort Hood in my district. So I've been trying to get more people registered. And when I talk to some military leaders um, in that environment, they ask me which party I represent. And I think that's an inappropriate question. It shouldn't be a partisan thing. Getting people registered to vote, I'm not asking what party you want to vote for before I register you. I just want to get more people registered to vote. Um, So I think that culturally, you know, we have regulations in place where Um, high school principals are supposed to be offering voter registration twice a year to their seniors um, and that something similar might be um, appropriate. I was a voter rep when I was in the military and um, it was just a, I can only speak to my experience, it was just another secondary duty that somebody had to do. But I took it very seriously and I think that we can do more in the military to encourage voter registration and get people to vote in their home of record. Mm
0: -hmm. Let's go over here.
5: Good afternoon. My name is Tristes de and I'm a retired Marine Corps Staff Sergeant. That was the loud one in the front. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> um, I am the president of the Student Veterans Organization at Texas Wesleyan in Fort Worth, and um, I worked on an assignment for a class once And last fall, and this spring I came across a documentary that was on veterans being deported. So as... We know well symptoms of PTSD don't always manifest right away. And when they do without proper resources and access to those, to those resources, veterans enter the criminal justice system. Um, the ACLU did a study and found that in the last several years, veterans have been being deported after honorable service. So my question is, what are your thoughts about the issue And at the state and federal level, what do you think needs to be done to help these individuals receive their citizenship for a country that they have served honorably and bring home those veterans that have been deported for nonviolent crimes? So...
0: I'm going to make the Marine answer
4: the Marine's question. Sure. <laughs> no, uh, it was certainly, you know, we have made some, some pretty serious tweaks to our to this criminal justice system here in Texas to handle veterans' issues. Uh, we, we actually have a veterans' courts that specifically are oriented towards handling exactly what you're talking yes, sir. about. And so I think that's, a, that's an important step that we've made. We continue to, uh, to improve and expand that each legislative session. Um, and, you know, I know certainly in Collin County, uh, Judge Roach is our district court judge, and he holds veteran, veterans' courts on a, on a regular basis, really trying to make sure that we're giving an appropriate level of justice to try to give, uh, to give every, every opportunity for uh, veterans who make mistakes to be given an opportunity to rectify that and come back into society. I think I, that, can I
5: sure. comment on that? Um, The city of Fort Worth has a veterans treatment court. I've volunteered with them. I think they're doing an amazing job. The issue comes in that these veterans that have been deported, they are not given the opportunity to participate in veterans treatment courts because they go through the immigration system. So, how are we going to... I think that there's something that that needs to be put in
0: place. To be fair to my my panel, that that is a federal issue and and everyone... uh, Ms. Hager is running for Congress, <laughs> but everyone else is uh, can Amazing. only act really on the state level. So, Ms. Hager, if you want to...
3: Uh, Just briefly, I think that um, this is part of the Dreamers conversation as well, Um, because Mm -hmm. I would classify them. I am a big advocate for people who have left the military with other than honorable discharges, to include nonviolent criminal offenses and those types of things. Um, I have also been an advocate for disability benefits for people who come home and get into, you know, uh, car accidents and those types of things, because those are combat-related injuries. Um, But I, I think that. It's such a long answer, and I'll just nutshell that I think that it's um, culture change. I mean, that's kind of my thing, because I I tried to introduce the women in combat roles into the military. Culture change is a difficult thing to do, but it is the most impactful and effective thing to do. And we have to change the culture in this country of thinking that people who are here illegally, uh, I I hate that term, because it really doesn't adequately sum up the situation. that that in itself shouldn't be thought of as a crime. I think that the DREAMers and the veterans that you're talking about represent the best of us, um, and there are people who there's so much misinformation out there. So I think um, we need to reframe the messaging. I know that's okay. not a good enough
0: thank answer. So we're going to take it over here now. Let's
3: talk after uh, more.
4: Okay. Good afternoon, and I just wanted to thank everybody on the panel as well as in this room for their service. Uh, my question surrounds um, military leadership being involved in the executive levels of the government. Earlier this year, there was a narrative that began to um, preponder about too many executives from the military who have spent the majority of their lives there moving into uh, the uh, civil government. And I was just curious as to your opinions on that, whether there is a point at which uh, that proportion goes um, out of balance or whether it's not an issue, and if you could just explain that.
0: Commissioner?
2: Uh, For those of you who may not know, our president is uh, unconventional there's really no playbook when when it comes to playbooks of organizing the white house i'm not sure that historians will look back and say it was conventional so um look I, perhaps it has to do with um the fact that you know he was not in the military um and there certainly is that concern you know i, I don't happen to know him very well and i'm obviously not working in the white house but if you are Commander-in-Chief, you need to surround yourself by the, the best, most qualified people that are going to put service to country on top of anything else. And I think when you look at the key selections, particularly Chief of Staff Kelly, I mean, he's instilled a level of order that um, many haven't seen so far uh, in the administration. Uh, General Mattis is recognized for his tremendous service and is now um, SecDef. And I know a deliberation is made, and it could be a Texan that serves as DHS. Uh, secretary. So these are, these are important, very complicated um, roles that need to be filled by the most talented people that we have in our country. And um, that debate will be ongoing, but I, I wouldn't look to convention in terms of <laughs> interpreting the uh, the Trump decision-making.
0: Well, I'm going to ask my fellow non-commissioned officer here because we have three officers. So we have a slightly <laughs> different view of
1: officers.
3: Sure you yeah. do.
1: Now we're starting
0: Representative, <laughs> I to say, what, what do you think about all these generals?
1: No, you know, I think it's, um, uh, I, I agree with, with George P. I mean, uh, since, the, since the beginning of the country, George Washington, surround, when he created his cabinet, he surrounded himself with war veterans. Alexander Hamilton, uh, uh, countless others, his first cabinet, his cabinet was uh, folks, officers from the Continental Army. So th- we have a, a tradition of uh, military officers and, and uh, non-commissioned officers that have the leadership capacity, that have the understand command and control uh, to be able to lead agencies. And, and I think we've got one here that's done a phenomenal job. I mean, look, look what's happening right now with, with, with Harvey and the efforts that he's leading on, 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 on housing. Those are unique experiences that you receive in the military and I encourage those uh, folks to continue to run for those uh, positions that, that head large agencies. Let's go over here. Officer or non-commissioned officer. <laughs> <over there. laughs> we need more of yeah. uh, Hello,
2: my name's Patrick Travers. I'm actually from uh, Collin County, in the State Senate District Eight. Um, as someone who's considering uh, possibly serving, and also maybe running for uh, going into public office, or maybe even running for public office, how did your how did you create your political ideology while you were serving, or how did you how did it mold while you were uh, in the armed forces? And also, besides what you mentioned before, what are some other skills that you might have picked up that really benefited um, once you transitioned into public office?
0: Oh, you stole my wrap-up question.
2: <laughs> uh,
4: well, you know, I, you know, so as a marine, I kind of look for the mission statement. You know, what's the mission statement? And I you know, just for me, what I learned in, in politics, your mission, your mission is more important than your life. And that's a pretty hard thing as a civilian. That was probably the hard, one of the hard things for me to kind of finally accept, that my mission was first. I was expendable. My people were expendable. My equipment was expendable. The mission had to be accomplished at all costs. Uh, and that, and the one thing I'll say, that one skill set thinking about that gave me was that in, in politics, the worst that's going to happen is your bill's going to go down, your amendment's not going to pass. You're going to go home and see your wife and children. In the military, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to die, you're going to fail your mission. So the stakes are so much higher than anything I've ever even dreamed of doing in politics uh, that I think it gives you a certain sense of calm (laughs) and (laughs) okayness with, hey, maybe my thing doesn't go through, but it's not a big deal. I'm going to get to go home to my family, and it's going to be all right. Um, But in terms of political ideology, um, you know, the Declaration of Independence, uh, second paragraph, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To secure those rights, governments are instituted by men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And that to me is, that is the mission statement of the reason that we have government in America today. God gives us our rights, and we entrust those rights to government who has its power, just powers from the consent of the governed, to protect those rights. The purpose of government is to protect rights, and it's actually more important than the safety of the people themselves. You think about the Founding Fathers. When they signed that document, they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And when they pledged that, they were also not only endangering themselves as signers of that document, but they were endangering their constituents. Every person who they represented was put at, put at risk by the sign of the Declaration of Independence. They put their entire nation at war with the largest empire in the world in order to be free, in order to secure their rights. And they thought their rights were so much more important than their own lives. And I think that we see that. We see that stake as we serve in the military, where we're literally risking our lives for the rights and protecting the freedoms of our own fellow Americans.
3: I think one of the important things in developing your ideology that military veterans have a benefit of, but that it's not... um, foreign to civilians if you're considering serving in the future one of the things that we get the benefit of is being immersed in other countries and other cultures even in this country and other cultures from around the the country. So, my challenge to you while you're developing your political ideology is get out of your comfort zone, go visit other countries, go see how their healthcare systems are working, go to Canada, go to Japan, go visit, you know, countries in Europe and the Middle East if you can and just immerse yourself in other cultures so that you can understand where they're coming from a little bit better without speaking about those cultures having not interacted with them at all.
0: Okay, we'll go over Thank here you. on the right.
3: Hi, um, I'm speaking to you today because I'm concerned about the ways in which the state has recently considered changing Hazelwood. And the reason that I'm concerned is, from my perspective, we have two different types of vets that this specifically sets up. Hazelwood was changed in 2009 to take and make it to those veterans could give those benefits to their children. Those who served prior to that change, the only expectation they had is those benefits could be used for themselves. What I want to know is if and when Hazelwood has changed, how are we going to treat those veterans who signed up after the 2009 uh, change and the promise was made to them absolutely that those benefits could be used for their children?
1: I'll take this one, yeah. I was gonna say, Look look, look, right up your alley, Representative. You're absolutely right, it's a promise that we made and this legislature just doesn't want to pay for it. We've got money. We absolutely have money, and it's just a—it's a matter of and the will to do it, and having the courage uh, to pay for it. Um, I think that uh, we've seen what the GI Bill has done for uh, previous generations. We've seen what Hazelwood has done for 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 current generations and future generations. And most of these folks that go to school stay in Texas, whether they're the the veteran who uses the benefit or the. Um, uh, dependent that uses the benefit they stay in Texas and they create jobs and they create businesses and and add to our economy. Um, I, I think that uh, you know, I, I've fought against changing Hazelwood for the last two sessions and, and we've been successful so far. Um, it is my hope uh, and I've worked with Republicans on the other side who want to defend it and, and, and keep it as is. Um, there are some that say it's not sustainable because the universities are saying we need to get paid. And I will say this, we should pay for it. Uh, It's a promise that we've made. Now I've got concerns about the calculations that universities make and say, you know, when they're they're making a lot of money off of oil and gas and real estate uh, all over the place and they're spending a lot of money on on, on a lot of extracurricular things, um, I do have concerns about how universities are presenting it. Um, But I think at the end of the day, it's up to the legislature Uh, to fully fund it. Uh, In the last two sessions, um, we've held the line on on going back on that promise to veterans. Uh, There's no guarantee that 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 will happen the next session. But we've seen a large uh, effort in activism uh, among the veteran community. Uh, We've seen uh, letter-writing campaigns. We've seen, I don't know if you attended any of the Hazelwood hearings in the House, standing room only. And, 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 and every, time, every time I, I always, I don't even serve on the committee and I ask to go and ask questions to make sure that it's on the record and that, that, uh, that we're advocating for our veterans. But I think we need to do more uh, because it's, there, the threat still exists. Uh, it, it could be still on the chopping block, but if, if we as a veteran community and organization continue to organize and educate uh, elected officials both on the Democratic side and the Republican side, About the benefit of this program, um, I think that we can save uh, Hazelwood.
0: Senator, would you like to address
1: the
4: question? Sure. You know, there's. I think go back to what uh, we only
0: have a few minutes, but sure. Just go back to what
4: the commissioner said. You know, Texas is an incredibly generous state with its benefits. I think I think we're the only state that provides basically a a complete free ride to veterans uh, in higher ed. I mean, we're so not even close. The thought in 2009 when Senator Vandipute, uh put, that, put an amendment into a bill was that the cost of that program would be, I think, just about $10, $10 million, and I think it's now costing in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So uh, the ability to, um, to uh, transfer that benefit down to uh, uh, veterans' children is, you know, create, has created a huge liability uh, for the state. now. In 2015, we were under the impression that we were we had already lost in a three-court panel in the Fifth Circuit, and we thought we were gonna lose when the whole that we were actually that, that, that we were gonna to have to provide the Hazelwood benefits to every veteran in the country. Okay, and that was a multi-billion dollar liability that we were confronting. And we and the and we were advised by attorneys that we will lose in the Fifth Circuit. Now incredibly after between 15 and then, we actually won. And we do not have to provide that benefit to every veteran in the country, which I think has really changed the math about how we think about that particular problem set. Uh, But I think what's great that Texas is so generous uh, to veterans, and I think it should continue.
0: Unfortunately, we don't have any more time. And uh, so if you have any additional questions or you'd like to meet any of the panelists, we are holding a meet and greet in the lobby sponsored by Old Castle Materials. And with that, thank you very much, and please
3: thank the panelists.